October 9, 2014. Rico Harris, a former Harlem Globetrotter and college basketball star, pulled up to his mother's duplex in Alhambra, California. When his mother, Margaret Fernandez, answered the door, Rico greeted her with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. This was their typical greeting, but today was anything but a typical visit. Margaret was surprised to see her son at all. He hadn't mentioned dropping by, and it was unusual for him to make a spontaneous visit. Rico and his fiancée lived more than a thousand miles away in Seattle, Washington. It quickly became clear something was wrong. Rico's breath reeked of alcohol, and he acted unusually quiet. He claimed he needed to grab a few personal items. Given the length of his drive, Margaret suspected that whatever they were, they must be important. But she watched her son only pack clothes. Margaret then followed her son through the house, hoping he'd offer more of an explanation. But he didn't. At one point, he announced that he wanted to take his younger brother Tito out to dinner. Then, without any further conversation, he left with Tito, and the pair didn't return for several hours. Rico's odd behavior unnerved Margaret, but she hoped he was just tired. When he got back home, she encouraged him to get some sleep before his return to Seattle in the morning. When she went to bed that night, Margaret assumed her son was safe and sound in his room. She never imagined that he'd sneak out of the house to embark on his second 18-hour road trip in two days, or that she'd never see her son again. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Rico Harris, a former Harlem Globetrotter and college basketball star who disappeared without a trace in 2014. Today, we'll examine Rico's career, personal life, and his ongoing struggles with addiction. Then, we'll detail his unusual disappearance, as well as the desperate investigation that ensued. Next time, we'll use the evidence to discuss what might have happened to Rico Harris, and we'll explore how a six-foot-nine, 300-pound basketball star could possibly go missing without ever being found. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. 
okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Rico Harris was the eldest of four children raised by his single mother, Margaret Fernandez. Growing up in Los Angeles, he saw his mom struggle to make ends meet and promised himself that someday he'd find a way to support his family. It didn't take long for Rico to find a path to stability. From a young age, he towered over the other kids on the playground. His teachers and coaches urged him to start playing basketball and he was a natural talent. By age 11, he was joining pickup games with adults and setting his sights on the NBA. Basketball ran in Rico's family. His father played semi-pro. Due to the team's demanding schedule, this meant Rico's father wasn't around much growing up. But the absence might have been a blessing in disguise. When Rico's father was home, he was reportedly abusive and especially quick to criticize his son, which is maybe why Rico channeled all his energy into bettering himself on the court. In high school, Rico found considerable success. The Pasadena Star News named him Athlete of the Week, and his senior year, he won Co-Player of the Year at Temple City High School. With graduation on the horizon, he'd already received offers from the University of Connecticut, the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of Kentucky to play college basketball. All the pieces were in place for him to make his dreams come true. Experts predicted he'd play in the NBA one day, an opportunity that would allow him to fulfill his promise to his mother and earn enough money to keep his family comfortable. While he excelled on the court, Rico struggled in the classroom. He eventually lost the chance at a full-ride scholarship to UCLA, his first-choice school, because his SAT scores were too low. After graduating, he enrolled at ASU, Arizona State University, intent on making the most out of his experience. But in college, Rico's attitude towards drugs and alcohol changed. Throughout high school, he'd been sober. He'd even admonished other classmates who drank or smoked, always focused on staying healthy to maintain his edge on the court. But at ASU, his priorities shifted. It's unclear what exactly triggered this shift, but it may have been tied to a distressing event during the spring semester of his freshman year. In March 1996, two women accused two of Rico's teammates of sexual assault. Rico wasn't implicated himself, but he'd reportedly been with the alleged rapists on the night in question. The police arrested him on suspicion of unlawful imprisonment, threatening, and intimidation. Authorities ultimately dropped the charges, but the incident left him shaken. 
and suspended from playing basketball. Arizona State asked him to sit out his sophomore year. But for Rico, sitting out wasn't an option. He transferred to L.A. City College, or LACC, where he could continue to play, and where he'd be closer to his beloved support system, his family. At LACC, Rico's athleticism was on full display. He won State Player of the Year and led his team to its first championship season ever. As a result, top-tier schools around the country once again began recruiting him. Soon enough, he accepted an offer to transfer to the University of Rhode Island. Off the courts, however, Rico's substance abuse continued. He started experimenting with speed and methamphetamine, and his grades plummeted. After failing a psychology course under NCAA rules, his grades weren't high enough to play basketball at a four-year institution. URI was out of the picture. But Rico's talents didn't necessarily need a brand-name school. At LACC, his career still caught the attention of the NBA. And in 1999, while Rico was a senior, scouts arrived to watch him play. Unfortunately, Rico didn't showcase the type of behavior or discipline they were looking for. He missed workouts, largely ignored the recruiters, and avoided meetings with his coach. So he graduated without any offers to play professionally. Then in 2000, he landed a spot on the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters. Like his father before him, Rico turned semi-pro. But his career was short-lived. A month after joining the team, Rico tried to break up a bar fight in South LA. And in the chaos, someone hit Rico in the back of the head with a baseball bat. He suffered a major concussion and started experiencing severe headaches for weeks afterwards, which caused him to lose his sense of balance. And as a result, he couldn't perform on the court. In the blink of an eye, Rico's basketball career was over at only 23 years old. After watching his dreams slip through his fingers, Rico fought a seven-year battle with drug addiction. In addition to alcohol, he reportedly used cocaine, meth, and heroin, and his drug use led to trouble with the law. In the early 2000s, he faced charges in L.A. County Superior Court 16 times for public intoxication, burglary, and trespassing. And he spent a good deal of time in and out of jail. There was one alleged instance in which he was even held at the same facility as his absent father. And his dad apparently didn't even recognize him. At some point, doctors diagnosed Rico with bipolar disorder, but he chose to stop taking his medications. He reportedly didn't like the way they made him feel. Unfortunately, the combination of emotional pain and an untreated mental health disorder caused Rico to hit rock bottom. In 2007, he almost died after overdosing on prescription drugs. But this brush with death prompted some concrete change. His family enrolled him in rehab. The program turned out to be a huge success. 
After a few months in care, Rico returned home sober with a renewed dedication to prioritizing the health and well-being for himself and those around him. And he started working full-time in security, which afforded him financial stability and the opportunity to meet new people. In 2012, while working as a bouncer at a club, Rico met Jennifer Song, an insurance broker who was visiting from Seattle. Charmed, he first took her picture and then asked if he could text it to her. Their relationship escalated quickly from there. After two years of long-distance dating, Rico and Jennifer started discussing the possibility of marriage. By August 2014, Rico said he wanted to move out to Seattle. But he began second-guessing himself almost immediately. The last time he'd lived away from his family, his addictions spiraled out of control, and he didn't want something similar to happen again. After flying to Los Angeles to discuss Rico's concerns in person, Jennifer became alarmed by his behavior. Rico typically greeted her with romantic gestures and bouquets of flowers, but now he was avoiding talking to her, and she found his room in disarray. Jennifer confronted Rico. It took some pressing, but eventually he made a confession. He'd relapsed. The stress of the impending move had driven him to drink again. But she didn't need to worry, he claimed. It had only been one drink, one time. He was lying. Unbeknownst to his family, Rico was regularly drinking and started using methamphetamine again. But Rico let Jennifer believe it had been a momentary slip-up, and he promised it would never happen again. So they decided to go forward with the move. Rico arrived in Seattle a few weeks later. The relocation wasn't easy. Rico struggled to find a job, which allegedly made him question his self-worth. Jennifer earned enough to support them both, but it didn't seem to matter to him. He wanted to pull his weight. Rico apparently didn't unpack his suitcases or boxes for a week after the move, which gave Jennifer the impression he wanted the option to leave at a moment's notice. And sometimes he would. To clear his head, Rico disappeared on long drives, occasionally for days at a time. Now, this behavior might normally raise some red flags, but according to Jennifer, this wasn't that out of the ordinary. She'd always known he enjoyed driving, so she supposedly didn't think much about him leaving without a word. About three weeks after the move, Rico secured a job interview for a position selling real estate and timeshares. By mid-September, he was finally unpacked, and life in Seattle started looking up. Until... On October 8, 2014, Jennifer left to go to the gym while Rico went out to explore Seattle. When she returned a few hours later, Rico sent her a text saying he'd left the city. He was on his way to California to visit his mother, an 18-hour drive away, and his interview was just a few days away. He claimed he needed to pick up some clothes and to, quote, tie up some loose ends. Jennifer didn't know what that meant exactly, but there was no stopping him now. He was already gone. 
Jennifer never saw Rico again, but she would speak to him one more time. Coming up, Rico Goes Missing. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution. Its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part miniseries, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. On October 8, 2014, former Harlem Globetrotter Rico Harris drove 18 hours from Seattle to his mother's house in California on a whim. When he arrived, his behavior was erratic. Despite his history of alcohol abuse, he shared a beer with his stepfather while discussing some relationship problems he'd been having with his girlfriend, Jennifer Song. Rico's mother, Margaret, convinced him to spend the night and as far as she could tell, he was asleep in his bed by midnight. But around 1 a.m., Margaret's phone rang. It was Rico calling from the highway. Margaret hadn't heard him leave the house. If she had, she would have stopped him. He was in no state to drive. He drove 18 hours straight the day before and hadn't gotten any rest since. She begged her son to come back home, but he said he couldn't. He needed to get back to Seattle for his job interview. Several hours later, Rico made another call, this time to Jennifer. She stayed on the line with him for several hours, terrified something would happen to him. Rico sounded exhausted. Jennifer pleaded for him to pull over and get some rest, and he agreed. He said he'd drive to the mountains to take a nap, but that wasn't the answer she was looking for. She told him to go to a rest area instead so he'd have cell service in case something happened. He relented and hung up. Several hours passed in which Jennifer didn't hear from Rico. She kept calling him, but he never picked up. Finally, at 10.44 a.m., he sent her a text. It read, Sorry I missed your call. I'm doing well, thinking about you. The message did little to reassure Jennifer. She couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right, and Rico was in danger, and she had reasons to be worried. 
According to the CDC, being awake for over 24 hours and driving is comparable to having a blood alcohol content of 0.1%, well above the legal limit. The longer he stayed on the road, the greater risk he posed to himself and others. Margaret and Jennifer continued to try to reach him, but each time they got his voicemail. All they could do was wait for 8 p.m. when he was due to arrive home. 8 p.m. came and went with no signs of Rico. Hours turned into days, but they still held out hope for a safe return until October 14th. Four days after they'd last heard from Rico, Jennifer and Margaret filed a missing persons report with the police. Coincidentally, the same day they did, a Yolo County Sheriff's deputy spotted a vehicle which matched the description of Rico's car, a black Nissan sedan sitting in a parking lot at Cache Creek Regional Park. Cache Creek is a small wildlife area in Rumsey Canyon, a popular hiking and camping spot north of Sacramento. It's only about 30 minutes off of Interstate 5, which connects Los Angeles to Seattle. The car looked like the driver had turned into the lot, then parked off to the side rather than pulling up to a designated spot. At first, the officer didn't think much of the vehicle. He assumed that an overnight camper had possibly arrived late and hadn't seen the lines, or a hiker had left their car there at a time when the other spots were full. But when he passed through the area the next day, he noticed the car hadn't moved. So he decided to run the registration. The car belonged to Rico Harris, the former basketball star who'd just been reported missing. The officer searched the car. It looked as if it had been ransacked. CDs and shredded pieces of paper littered the seats and floor. But far more alarming were the other items found. Empty liquor bottles, a suitcase full of clothes, Rico's wallet with one credit card and ID missing, and a bindle, a small container often used to store drugs. Investigators immediately sent the bindle to a lab, hoping they'd be able to identify whatever drugs Rico might have been using. But interestingly, they found no traces of anything. Now, this could indicate that Rico used all of its contents, but if that were the case, it's highly unlikely forensics wouldn't detect any remnants of any substance. And this wasn't the only piece of inexplicable evidence. The car had a dead battery and a nearly empty tank of gas. With few clues to work with, Yolo County Sheriff's Detective Dean Nyland launched an investigation. His first suspicion was that someone might have carjacked Rico and then driven to Cache Creek, which meant Rico might not be anywhere near the park. But due diligence came first. Nyland launched a search of the immediate area. This included enlisting ATVs, scuba divers, cadaver dogs, and helicopters. But they found no blood, no body, and no signs of foul play. The only evidence they found were footprints from a size 18 shoe and two large tennis shoe insoles discarded by the creek. 
not many people wear a size 18 shoe, so it seemed likely that Rico had driven down to Cache Creek and abandoned his car at some point. As for why he'd removed the insoles during his journey, that was anyone's guess. Detective Nyland had hope, though. Rico was a six-foot-nine-inch man with tattoos who weighed over 300 pounds. He couldn't imagine a universe where Rico would go undetected for long. But the location of the car didn't add up. The drive from Alhambra to Seattle was a straight shot up Interstate 5. If Rico wanted to stop to rest, get gas, or eat, he didn't need to go far out of his way. Especially given Rico's tight schedule, he needed to be back in Seattle for his interview. There was no reason to take such a lengthy detour. After their search in Cache Creek for the most part came up empty, Nyland pulled Rico's phone records and reviewed every text, every call, and every voicemail with unexpected results. One of the last phone calls Rico placed to Jennifer came from Lodi, California, a small town about 100 miles south of Sacramento. During their conversation, Rico explained that he'd stopped to get gas but this couldn't be true. If Rico drove straight from Lodi to Cash Creek, there was no way he could have burned through an entire tank of gas. According to detectives' estimates, Rico would have used less than half a tank by the time he arrived at the parking lot of Cash Creek, unless he took a detour somewhere else. Unfortunately, Rico hadn't contacted anyone since 9.30 a.m. on October 10th when he spoke with his mom. The last words Rico reportedly spoke were, I love you, before he hung up. Luckily, Rico still had his phone with him. Though he wasn't using it, his provider was able to track his location in the days after he went missing. They believed he was now somewhere in the Redwood Valley area, 70 miles away from where he'd left his car. Each new discovery was more baffling than the last. Anxious for some clue that would make sense of the disappearance, Nyland returned to Cache Creek dozens more times. He even walked his dog on the trails on his days off. But his first break only came when he started crowdsourcing information. The Yolo County Sheriff's Department sent over 4,000 phone and text messages to local residents, urging them to reach out if they had any information on Rico's whereabouts. Shortly after, a tip came in from a man who'd recently driven through Cash Creek Regional Park on a family trip. For clarity, we'll call him Paul. While on their trip, Paul's son noticed a backpack on the side of the highway. When they pulled over to investigate, they found a dead cell phone, a cell phone charger, jumper cables, and some bottles filled with what appeared to be alcohol and energy drinks inside the bag. Concerned, Paul and his family explored the surrounding area, looking for the owner of the backpack. But they didn't find anyone or anything. Then. When they returned home after their trip, Paul charged the phone. Immediately after the phone turned on, hundreds of concerned texts came flooding in. 
Paul put two and two together and called the police. He'd found Rico Harris's bag. Paul's testimony was the equivalent of one step forward and two steps back for the investigation. All the cell phone data officials had pulled was now useless. Rico hadn't hitchhiked 70 miles out of the forest. Paul and his family lived in Redwood Valley. They'd taken the bag home with them after they'd found it, which meant Rico could still be anywhere. But the phone itself offered Nyland a new clue. A video Rico had recorded of himself timestamped the day of his disappearance. The clip showed Rico sitting in his car, singing and dancing to music. His behavior indicated he might not be sober. Nyland assumed possibly drunk, on drugs or both. But he was clearly parked somewhere with the engine running, tearing papers up and throwing CDs around. Nyland knew about Rico's struggles with drug abuse and his relationship troubles with Jennifer. They'd already suspected he may have used methamphetamine to stay awake for over 40 hours. That information, coupled with the video, seemed to confirm that Rico had relapsed. The detective now had a better sense of how Rico spent the last few days before his disappearance. But he still didn't know where Rico had gone. Or if he was still alive. Coming up, the first reported sighting. Now back to the story. On October 9th, 2014, Rico Harris went missing. A little over a week later, Detective Dean Nyland issued a missing person alert to the press, neighboring police departments and local governments. Almost immediately, tips came rushing in. Multiple witnesses claimed to have seen a large man matching Rico's description walking on the side of the highway on October 11th. Around the same time, one couple spotted him wandering around a black car, seemingly confused. Another witness saw him sitting on the support rails over the creek. All accounts suggested he was delirious and aimlessly wandering. The last reported sighting occurred on October 19, 2014, five days after Rico's car was found. A passerby saw a large man in the parking lot of Cash Creek National Park. Confused, he allegedly looked around the area as if searching for something before walking into the forest and out of view. This confirmed that Rico had been in the area roughly one week after his disappearance. Somehow, he evaded the teams of people scouring the park after his car was found. But at least he was last seen alive. Regardless, we know that police were optimistic that Rico might still be in the area. A canine team gravitated towards a small lake in the center of the park, Investigators dispatched a team of scuba divers to explore the waters, but they didn't find anything new. It was yet another dead end. Once again, Rico could have been anywhere. In the time since his last sighting, he could have hitchhiked out of the woods or been hiding somewhere just outside the perimeter. Or he could have run into one of the many predators living in Cache Creek National Park, like a bear or a mountain lion. But Detective Nyland fixated on the reports that Rico did not appear sober and kept returning to his history of drug use. 
To him, it seemed like the key to the investigation. Rico's family, however, rejected this theory. His mother, Margaret, insisted that Rico had been sober for the past seven years. She couldn't believe he'd relapse now, just when his future looked so promising. Margaret suspected the police might be intentionally trying to paint Rico as a careless drug addict to justify their inability to close the case. But ultimately, she just wanted her son back home, safe and sound. Each time the phone rang, she felt a chill run down her spine. Any call could be from Rico. Margaret kept scrapbooks full of newspaper articles about Rico's basketball years, hoping she might learn something new. She regularly posted pleas on Facebook for people to pray for her son's safe return. She stored Rico's clothing at her house in case he ever came home. But with each passing day, it seemed more and more unlikely. He never used his credit cards or accessed his bank account. He never called. And there were no additional sightings. Three years after his disappearance in 2017, Margaret gave an interview to the LA Times about Rico. She insisted that her son was still alive somewhere and alluded to the fact that something bad but not fatal might have happened to him. She provided few specifics, but hinted he may have fallen prey to something evil. It's hard to say what this evil was or if it had anything to do with the investigation into her son's disappearance. But regardless, Margaret was right, at least in a sense. Rico Harris did fall prey to something. A person doesn't just vanish without a trace. There's always an explanation. The question is, can you find it? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two on the disappearance of Rico Harris. For more information on Rico, amongst the many sources we used, we found Disappeared, California Leaving, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hughes Ransom, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.